The History Today cover story for July is by Charles Luddington. It's called Walpole, Wigs and Wine and concerns the way in which England's shifting social order following what is now called, or was called, the Glorious Revolution defined itself. In this case, through the consumption of fine claret. We have Charles with us today. And may I ask you, Charles, there is a difference between the fine luxury claret that uh, we're talking about towards the end of the 17th century and the kind of claret that had uh, been consumed in England for many centuries. Can you tell us the difference between them? Absolutely. Um, first of all, it's wonderful to, to be on. And... Um Delighted to talk to everyone uh, today. And the, the distinction that um, is important to understand is between a traditional type of claret. Uh, in fact, the word claret itself gives away uh, its origins as a um, sort of a small, relatively clear, probably rosé wine that had been made in the Bordeaux region, um, largely for the English market, of course, going back to the time when uh, the the, the um, Bordeaux was in many ways the vineyard or the vineyard, as you say, of England because of uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine's marriage to Henry II. In any event, um, all that was lost in 1453 at the end of the Hundred Years' War. But the type of wine that emerged from there was still what we might call a simple uh, vin de pays peasant wine. Uh, again, probably rosé in color, very light in body and meant to be consumed within the year. But then in the mid-17th century, uh, what happened was... Um, a man named Arnaud de Pontac, who was the premier president, the first president of the Parliament of Bordeaux, who had some very prime property, uh, notably um, uh, an estate that he called Aubryon, uh, created a wine, he seems to be the first to have done it, uh, created a wine in which he uh, selected the grapes more carefully, probably used uh, only red grapes, uh, let the wine uh, 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 um, um actually ferment for longer, make a more concentrated wine. And in any event, he was trying to create a luxury product for the English market. Specifically, he was sending that wine, or he sent that wine in 1660 uh, to the court of Charles II. Literally within a month of Charles's return to the throne, we have evidence of uh, his wine buyer, his butler, buying uh, some wine called, in Latin in this case, Hubriono, but of course it was Hubrion. Uh, and this wine was distinctly different in terms of its quality, in terms of its color, and we know that because of the evidence of Samuel Pepys, who wrote in 1663 in his diary, uh, the remarkable, uh, about the, about the, the, an extraordinary wine, the taste was different, etc. Uh, I'm forgetting the exact quote, but in any event, he noted uh, very clearly that it was a different type of wine uh, than anything he'd ever had before called claret. And so uh, that wine... Uh, was the type of wine, again, that was produced for the English market, and that helped to, uh, in the end, allow claret to succeed on the English market despite the embargoes and the high taxes that were imposed upon it during the late 17th century. And this wine, this claret, is more like, in fact, it is the ancestor of the claret we know today with the great names not just of Aubryon but of Margot, Lafitte, Latour, this is this is where it comes from. Yeah, absolutely. This this is that that very period. In fact, as, as I try to explain in the article, one of the things that one begins to see, Aubryon, the name, as I said, is first seen in 1660. But in the first five years 
of the 18th century, that is, during the very uh, period, um, well, dur during the War of the Spanish Succession, when you'd think, in fact, that uh, high-quality Bordeaux's or, uh, in fact, French wine of any sort would not be arriving in England because there was an embargo on French goods. But it's during this very period that one begins to see um, the names, in this, and specifically in uh, auction records from London, the names Lafitte, Latour, uh, Margot, um, arising in England. One also sees those same name, the same names in some of the uh, seller records of people like Baron Harvey, the Earl of Sunderland, uh, a variety of, again, high-ranking Whigs in particular, uh, who seem to be very fond of them. But absolutely, in that, in that period, during Queen Anne's reign and during a war, no less, in which there's officially an embargo on French goods, uh, that uh, the other four first growth, sorry, the other three first growth clarets, uh, there were four initially uh, up until the 1970s when Mouton joined, but uh, all those wines are, are known by name uh, by elite English consumers by around 1705. And what we have at the time of Queen Anne's reign, in the wake of uh, what used to at least be known as the Glorious Revolution, is the great division in English politics between the Tory party and the Whig party. And it's the Whigs that become associated with the consumption of fine claret. Can you explain that, please? Well, that's, that's actually the, um, that conundrum was that what first uh, got me excited about this topic, which I had heard and read in various uh, um, uh, books that, that claret was supposed to be the Tory one and port was supposed to be the Whig one. And what I then discovered when looking at the, at the cellar records uh, was, in fact, in many ways it was just the opposite. Well, not exactly the opposite, but certainly many, many leading Whigs were drinking claret, so it was hardly a Tory wine. And for the Whigs, claret was ended up, uh, well, on a popular level, Whig politicians were trying to uh, discourage the importation of French wines, because, of course, the French were the real enemies in their mind, where for the Tories, the French might not have been wonderful, but the Dutch were the real concern. But so on a popular level, the Whigs were trying to discourage the, the importation of French wines. But uh, for their own consumption, uh, French wines were very important for establishing their credentials as um, as worthy of, of, of authority and, and, and establishing their, their rule as legitimate, especially because many of them came from uh, commercial backgrounds. They couldn't uh, assert their own aristocratic uh, identities and therefore, we have the right to rule over you simply because we're, we're aristocrats. Instead, they had, they had to ground their authority in their moral and aesthetic credentials, and that came from, as I argue, uh, politeness in general. That is, they had to show through their behavior and through their aesthetic choices that they were morally worthy and therefore uh, politically legitimate. And one of the things that, they, that Whigs in particular used uh, as a way to assert that authority was wine. Now, one, some might say, why wine? Well, the issue there was that wine still had, because of its historic uh, connections to both the court uh, and to uh, the church through the Eucharist, it still had this residual implications of authority. And so wine, uh, sort of like a gentleman, a politician wearing a tie today, a male politician, you have to wear a suit and tie to be taken seriously. You have to drink wine. Uh, on various public and indeed private occasions uh, to show that you are uh, you have political authority, but then it's what you do with that wine. Can you discuss that wine? 
So how, when you talk about this establishing their connoisseurship, their aesthetic credentials, where did they do this to make people realise that they were worthy of this authority? That's a very good question, the one that often comes up. How is this something that people knew about? Well, um, take someone like, like Walpole, for example. Uh, when he held his Norfolk Congresses, what were called his Norfolk Congresses up at um, Houghton in the... In Norfolk, up near King's Lynn, uh, he would invite upwards to 50 gentlemen to come up with him, and they ranged from quite wealthy squires uh, to aristocrats to prominent clergymen. Uh, and so the performance there, again, was not on a, a massive scale of thousands of people, but certainly uh, he would both he, he, by, by serving it, by talking about it in front of 50 societal leaders every or twice a year, sometimes uh, that was part of the performance. Uh, the other part of another part of performance uh, would come through uh, the display in conversation pieces. That is, the performance of drinking and tasting claret was then represented in uh, paintings, oil paintings referred to as conversation pieces, which of course are, are group portraits showing uh, generally men, but men and women sometimes. But when, when drinking wine, almost always simply men uh, performing uh, the act of aesthetic appreciation. And Walpole's very much the person who first understands, I suppose, that wealth, although he was an immensely wealthy man, was not enough in politics anymore. In a post-aristocratic world, or at least one where the aristocracy is challenged, um, there are issues of taste, and power is no longer that of breeding or blood. It's about taste. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and again, for Walpole... Um... I argue that it was sort of integral to his um, to his own transformation from someone who genuinely was a uh, came from the squirearchy, uh, whose father was was a sort of a, an East Anglian rustic, uh, and for Walpole, um, who obviously very much you know, who, who made it in that political world in, in a dramatic fashion, uh, that Claret was very much part, uh, well, both a reflection of his rise to power uh, as both as well as something that helped him rise up. That is, if he could show, among other polite gentlemen at an early age, that he was one of them through his consumption. It wasn't simply a reflection of his power. It was something that, that helped to get him there uh, and keep him there uh, in, in the first instance. And um, uh, yes, you know, he, he had a, an incredible penchant for, for fine wines, um, Aubryon, Lafitte, Margot, Latour. Uh, we find all of them uh, in his cellar records. So he was, uh, he was, he was quite aware of the, uh, the political implications and the social implications of wine, because, uh, as I just mentioned, he also, um, while luxury claret was, was very much his favorite wine, uh, one of the things that's also interesting is how much um, Portuguese wine he did have, again, but for a very different audience. Uh, so in that sense, while my article is, a very, is about claret uh, and the way that it helped to establish the legitimacy of the uh, elite um, and the credentials of the elite. There was wine, a variety of wines were used as a way to establish uh, credentials within different social groups. Well, thank you, Charles. Walpole, Wigs and Wine, Charles's article, is the cover story for the July edition of History Today. And thank you very much. It's fascinating stuff, Charles. Thank you. Well, thank